Today on Backroom Politics, special guest, National Press Club President Angela Keene to talk all things NSA and DOJ subpoenas. We're going to be talking NSA in the first hour regarding Mr. Snowden. Is he a hero? Is he a traitor? We'll talk about that and the implications of what exactly are they listening to in my phone conversations. Also, the Senate takes up immigration, the impact of the new immigration bill going forward. That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon, everybody out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday here in Washington, D.C. It means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday. To my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress, representing the second congressional district of Washington State. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. How do you do, sir? Good to see you, sir. And... To my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for Congressman Gerald R. Ford, former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. Looking very dashing today. To my 12 o'clock, she is the former committee counsel for Homeland Security under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee as general counsel to the Marad administration, or the Maritime administration, or Marad. She is... <laughs> The Honorable Denise Krepp. They don't even know what Marat is, so why bother, Denise? Hi, Denise. Hi, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock, he is the former uh, Undersecretary of Commerce who has served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, and a very handsome fellow from the Stinson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hi, Alan. Hello, Justin. Good to see you, sir. And to my right, he is the former Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland. He is the longtime Washington Insider, Carl Tubin. Hi, Carl. Hello out there, and hello, Justin, and everybody. Well, it, we've got a lot to talk about. In the 5.30 hour, we're going to have special guest Angela Keene, the president of the National Press Club, joining us. We're going to have an interesting discussion with her. She picked a great day to come on today. But let's get going on the big news the big buzz around uh, Washington, D.C. For those of you who have top-secret clearances and are looking for a job, apparently Booz Allen Hamilton has an opening in Honolulu for an intel analyst. The intel analyst job pays about $122,000 a year because the guy who had that job is now on the run. He is Edward Snowden, the former intel analyst contractor for NSA that apparently went to a, I guess it's a web blog newspaper in in England called The Guardian and pretty much talked about all things NSA, including how he, as a contractor, if he wanted to, could tap into the president's phone lines if he had an email address, as well as disclosing a large-scale 
listening program being undertaken by NSA. That has gotten everybody in Washington up in arms. Now, Alan, more I'm going to start with you. Did, how important is this, is this subject to the American people? Do I mean, are we looking at this and going, really, we didn't know about this? Or is this a big surprise to Americans that the government might be collecting data on their phone calls and emails? Well, this is still unfolding for the American people, and they, they in, in polls released uh, just today, they still say by a two-to-one margin that they would favor anti-terrorism activity even if it meant some uh, imposition of civil liberties. Well, when you I say anti-terrorism activity, the investigation absolutely. and the collection of evidence. Ab- absolutely. The, right. The, it, but it, and, the, and the details are still unfolding. I think for the, for the moment there's a, a big question, though, about what this means for the White House. A couple of weeks, and, and I'm reminded that just a couple of weeks ago, Oklahoma had a major tornado. A week later, it had another tornado in the same general area. Well, a few weeks ago, the White House was faced with this unprecedented shitstorm, the trifecta, the, the scandal family trifecta. Program, it's important that these families hear things the way they are. So, not a, <laughs> just as they're dealing with this scandal trifecta, they're hit with another shitstorm. This yes. is like a this is like a shitstorm sandwich. It is for it is. for the White House, and they are are at a loss to figure out what to do. The disclosures are significant, but some of the stuff that's coming out and it's not out all out yet are things that have been out there. Things that President Bush was heavily criticized for for not not even necessarily having the legal authority to do, and then the legal authority was granted, and President Obama, it turns out, has built out upon what the Bush administration was doing. Denise Krepp, you you served as as House Counsel on Homeland Security. Obviously, you got briefings on certain things. Obviously, you can't talk about on a radio show, but we've heard that from the administration that they had been briefed on these type of activities. Now, without going into detail, is this something that you believe that Congress, as many have said, had been briefed on yes. throughout the years, even yes. going back to the Bush administration? You believe that? Yes. Without getting into detail, how would that go about? This is obviously very classified. If you're going to give these types of briefings, you're going to give the briefings to those that are on your authorizing committee as well as your appropriations committees. You'll be giving them to your members of Congress, with Congress without as, as well as their staffers. Most likely, given the um, time limitations placed on members of Congress, these briefings were given to staffers, so that it was up to the staffers to give the briefings to their bosses. Uh, but yes, do I think this is that people have briefed on? Absolutely. Because they have money to do this. But Congress for now, you know, it, it, it's ironic. You know, we, we're seeing a lot of the people defending the Obama administration's position on this subject, i.e. Dianne Feinstein is a great example, that you almost look at it back in the Bush administration, these are people that would have gone ballistic over an unveiling of this type of operation, especially as prevalent as it is inside the Bush administration. Is there a certain hypocrisy here? Uh, Time changes. Hypocrisy, there's a little... Is there hypocrisy in Washington, D.C.? Oh, heavens, no. Is that sarcasm? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, it, uh, 
it may be. But what, what occurs to me is the whole idea of keeping a secret in Washington, D.C. disturbs me a little bit. I remember going to a briefing. Uh, it was members only, and they were all hush, 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 and the Secretary of Defense was there and what have you. And it had to do, during the Jimmy Carter administration, with the failed effort to go in and free the hostages. And the question was, that was asked was, how did they plan to do it if, they got, if the helicopters hadn't crashed? How did they plan to do it? And they said to this room full of congressmen, that's classified, we can't tell you. The next day, on the front page of the Washington Post, with diagrams, was the entire plan. Now, so, 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 so what, what secrets are we keeping? I mean, uh, I, I, I have some serious problem with, with, with that. But, but Bob, you know, we, we've been looking at this, and, th and this is, as Alan said, still unraveling. You know, we've heard about programs called PRISM, which are these large-scale computers. You know, I said PRISM, Denise cringed. Uh, it, it, it's, it's something that had been top secret, but now is out in open world forum that, that you know we've been doing stuff like this for a long time it's part of our intelligence gathering method we brought up uh the scene in the movie patriot games where we did that overseas it almost seems like the american people expect it to be overseas but not so much domestically is is that a result of 9 11 is, is that is there a night to say here i i think it's I think after 9-11, everything changed in a very real sense. I mean, we realized that there were folks who were out to get us and were able to do serious damage. And, and, ever, and since then, we've had a number of, of different uh, attacks on us, one place or another. And I think the American people are more uh, prepared to see the government uh, actively pursue these folks in, in ways that they might not have agreed with had it not been for 9-11. We have to remind ourselves that the original statute, the Patriot statute, was a statute that was, um, that was uh, created and approved during the administration of a Republican uh, president. The law we're, on, we're, we're now talking about is an extension of that. It's, it's, an, it's an expansion and a renewal of that Patriot statute. I don't know enough about it to know how much new is involved and in, 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 in what we're going to find out uh, as we go forward. But my view is, I think Alan is right, I, most Americans believe that it is better to have the government trying to identify dangerous people in one way or another. It's better to have them doing that than it is not to be doing it because, by golly, look, we missed one just recently in Boston. And look at the problem we had there. Well, you know, it's funny you bring up Boston. Uh, Alan Moore, a friend of mine in the national security community, was talking to me, and he said, if you go back and you listen to one of the briefings that that the federal government and the state government and the city of Boston did after the bombings, right after they had identified the Zarnayev brothers as the alleged perpetrators, there is a statement that was made at one of the press briefings that said. Once we knew who the suspects were, we went back and listened to their phone conversations. Interesting point. Nobody grabbed onto that until now. And it's almost like, you know, have we been doing this in other, 
Now they're set, they're attributing phone conversations to preventing Times Square. Uh, another Times Square bombing apparently was thwarted by this. Is there is, is there reality in this that we're not just grabbing onto? Well, let, let me make one comment. I do not believe we were going back to listen to phone conversations. We don't have the content of phone conversations. What we have is, and, the, and, and we got this from all of the telephone providers and have been for quite a long time now, it turns out, we have a record of which phone numbers talk to what other phone numbers. And where those phone numbers were. And where, where we those think they were. were if they happened to be cell phones and how long the phone conversation went on. We don't have the content. Nobody has the content of the phone conversations. This, all we have is what's called the metadata, and that's all we would, we would ever have. The phone companies don't record phone calls. They do have a record which they keep of which numbers talk to which numbers, and that's the, the phone piece of, of, the, of, of the data. The other piece is the, the social media, the email, the Internet stuff, where there is content, because it's all digital, it's it's captured, and and there's a question about how much of that is being downloaded to the NSA computers. It's 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 confusing. We know that whenever there's a foreign connection uh, to America, we start gathering the data to where those connections are. It's not yet clear to me that our emails <coughs> to each other ever every week are are being collected. I, that, that, that one is still uh, a, a different question, but I want to make, make two other comments. One, every member of Congress doesn't get this full briefing. The people who get the most are the members of the, of the Senate and House Intelligence, Intelligence Committee, so that's why you're seeing Dianne Feinstein and Mike Rogers, her counterpart in the House, so much on TV. They knew just about everything, and they're, they're ones who are saying, we have gotten a lot of very good stuff out of this. Now, in response to, to Al's sort of concern about why we hide this stuff, the reason we hide this stuff is because we don't want the terrorists to know what it is that we're up to. If they feel confident in picking up certain kinds of phones and talking on the phone or using emails in certain ways, then they will likely continue to do that. Now, the more they know about what we're doing with phone information and email and Facebook and Yahoo and everything else, the more the more sophisticated terrorists are going to take uh, take actions to protect themselves. Congressman Al. I, I wasn't suggesting that, that I, I didn't understand why we were making it secret. What I was suggesting was how come it wasn't secret in that particular instance. Well, it, it, it seems it seems like that. I mean, when Snowden had access to just about everything going on. Yes, he did. Up at NSA, and for those outside the Beltway, NSA is the National Security Agency, which up until maybe two decades ago, nobody even knew that agency exists. They used to joke, they used to call it no such agency. Uh, but I think what has happened now is it's now not a secret because of the leaks that Snowden put out. Is, is that accurate? You think Denise crap? Well, it's certainly in everybody's front page paper this weekend. Could I say something? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Go ahead, Congressman. Let her respond. Yeah. I just happened today to have a guy up to fix my, my direct TV, and he happened to mention in the process that he was retired NSA. 
And so I engaged him in conversation about this guy, and his his judgment was, he's stupid. I thought that was a very interesting reaction. Oh, of course, of course, Denise. Hi. For me, the Snowden issue is how many folks have access to what type of information. I mean, when I was on active duty, um, I had a security clearance. When I worked for the House Homeland Security Committee, I had a clearance. That clearance didn't necessarily ensure that I had access to information. I had access if I had to need to know. That being said, the one way in which he got that access, I'm betting, is because he had access to a computer system that was tied to the secure systems. So one issue that I would be recommending to the government is you need to be looking right now at who has access to these secure systems. And we're going to talk about that. When we talk about Snowden, I also want to bring up the, the whole contracting of intelligence. We'll bring that up in the next segment. Okay. But Alan Moore, you had something. Yeah, when we say how much uh, Snowden had access to, I think we don't know yet. He, he said that he knew the name of, of, every, of every American intelligence agent and location around the world. People very high in the CIA, in the CIA have said nonsense. There's a handful of people at the CIA who have that information. That is not something that that drips down unless one there is some there are breaches in the system that a clever guy could figure out or two He's he's not acting alone. He's got some information, and there's some other reasons to wonder about whether he's got some partners. He sort of jumped out there and said, "I'm your guy. Leave everybody else alone." Even these 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 Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court uh, orders, or yeah, the FISA, the FISA orders, or the the, the, the or the FISCs, um, they from that the, the, from the FISC court. Um, there's only supposedly 30 or so people who know what those are. So that raises interesting question. Are there are there more people here? And then the third question, the third answer to what he would be saying is he's blowing smoke. He's saying he knows more than he knows. He knew plenty and he's sharing it and this is a problem. Uh, if he has everything that he claims he has and if he has shared this the, the people at the Guardian, which by the way is a very distinguished, that was once the Manchester Guardian newspaper, it's not a web blog, this is a major uh, UK newspaper and they happen to also be on the web, right, the Guardian's a big deal paper um, uh, doesn't mean that I'm defending everything they did in this particular case but they are saying, that the reporter this guy Greenwald at that paper is saying Oh, we got many more things. We have a lot of stories. Well, he said that this morning on Morning Joe. In recent weeks. We got got more hot stuff. Uh, Carl Tubin. A few things. Number one, uh, it wasn't only Diane Feinstein that jumped on this. It was Lindsey Graham, Saxby Chambliss, and I think uh, Senator McCain, who came up and and defended uh, the administration uh, for doing this. Also, um, you know, staff gets briefs. But how much of the briefing do they give to their members? That we don't know. And that's why you had a lot of members getting up and saying, what is this? I don't know anything about this. Well, and I can tell you that after, uh, well, all right. In order to have a classified briefing, you have, in order to have a classified briefing, you have to have it in a certain room that is protected. Um, That room has instruments. and what happened after 9-11 was that uh, 
the Homeland Security Committee created a classified uh, room within the committee in the Ford building, but then based off of need for other members, they created a uh, room that's in the uh, National Visitor Center. Right. So that members, if they do want to have a classified briefing, can go there and receive that type of briefing. So this goes again to your, your issue of, you know, could they receive these briefings? Absolutely. There, there's now space available for these briefings. Were the staff members providing such information? As a former staffer, sometimes I was selective. Sometimes I gave my boss certain things, sometimes I didn't. And the other part is when you do give your boss that information, it has to be in a protected area. So it's not as if you can be walking around the streets of D.C. and say, hey, boss, guess what I learned today? Interesting. Bob Hines. I wanted to follow up on something that Alan said because, again, I know very little about the way these systems are structured. But it's always been my impression that um, the more delicate the information, the fewer people are authorized to receive it. And the idea that somebody's working out in Honolulu, I think the gentleman was, Correct. seems to me to be a funny place to find somebody who is, who is so high that he's got some of the really deepest secrets protected. Uh, on his uh, on his watch, how he would have those things. I have no knowledge about this area, but my impression is that he would not be in that kind of a position to find that unless he was able to somehow break into it, right. which would clearly be a crime. Well, you know, Congressman Al, you you've got the head of the NSA, General Keith Alexander, who's now in a really precarious position as far as number one, how could his agency allow a leak to be uh, uh, thrown out there like this. And also, is there a breach? Is the system broken? Now, he's got senators. He's got a brief coming up here uh, on the, this afternoon, I believe, where he's got some explaining to do. Is Congress ready to hold his feet to the fire? Well, Congress is always ready to hold uh, people's feet to the fire, whether there's any reason to do so or not. <clears throat> does seem to me that we don't know enough in order to answer the questions you ask. Uh, you just raised the point, how can, how can somebody in Honolulu know all of this? Well, we need to know what, in fact, he did know, what, in fact, he has... Uh, What's he authorized to have? Re ...revealed, uh, and, and then you can start making judgments about whether the system is broken or whether there are leaks or whether there are terrible uh, things going on. He's going to have to go up and talk to Congress before he knows those things, and that's going to be a very uncomfortable position. Alan Moore. Yeah, two, two things. One, before we throw uh, congressional staff under the bus for failing to convey information to their members, um, some of this, this highly secure national intelligence stuff only goes to members. Um, and, uh, and the most the highest level goes to the, the members of the Intelligence Committee. And then there are, and I remember numerous times where in the Senate, especially after 9-11, um, where there would be gathering of the senators up in a secure room on the Senate side of the Capitol, senators only. And they would get the, they would get the briefings. Now, they might have an experience like Al did where they're asking questions, they don't get an answer, and they read about it the next day. But, but it, it's, a, it's a narrow band of members whose staff also gets access to all these these uh, these uh, these deepest secrets, um, the, the the guy who, there's another guy who's got a big problem right now, and that's uh, James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, head of the CIA. He uh, he 
just a couple weeks ago was uh, testifying in the Senate, and, and Ron White, interestingly a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, asked him a, a question about whether any data was being collected uh, about the communications involving millions or hundreds of millions of Americans, and he answered no. Right. And, uh, Which and, we're, now, and we're learning today that, uh, well, not only does Wyden feel that this was a lie, but Wyden has come out and said, I gave him the question a day ahead, and I gave him afterwards, we went back and said, if you guys want to modify or clarify your, your answer, please please do so. Now, what I'm wondering about, there's two things you wonder. One, why would Clapper answer that way? Two, why would Wyden, who's a member of the Intelligence Committee, ask the question in that way? It looked like he was trying to set him up. Uh, he didn't take it, and, and in a very inartful set of words, said uh, Clapper said of his answer, that was the, the least untruthful answer that I could give. Well, that was very bizarre. Rather than simply saying, uh, Senator, if you could, I would like to suggest that when we get into details about our data collection sources, we go into closed session and we discuss that behind closed doors. He didn't say that. He, he came out some, and said no. He said no. He's got some serious explaining to do, and his position is is just one of many that Con that Congressman, Congressman Howe, that if, if you had gotten that answer as a seated member of Congress, there'd be some serious, serious hide that have to be shown for that one. Well, and, and, and Ron Wyden's a guy who can do it uh, if, he, if he chooses to. Uh, why he didn't do it right then, uh, as Alan suggests, uh, I don't know. But uh, for for him to not amplify when he was given the opportunity to it is inexplicable. Call to him. You know, there's been a lot of explanations about what this exactly was, and, and one of the best explanations I heard is is that the, this was set up mainly to listen to or track calls that came from Europe and Asia and other places to the United States. And if there was enough traffic to one phone uh, uh, number, then they would look and see where that phone number, who they called. And so there might not be this huge number of of people that were, were tracked, as a lot of people are saying, it could be a lot smaller. Denise Crack. Just, I, I, I asked an interesting question of some friends of mine recently who are uh, fellow lawyers, and I, the question I posed was, as a lawyer, if I'm in court and my client's on the stand and my client is lying, what are my responsibilities? Well, those responsibilities are pretty clear cut. You, you know, you cannot. Uh, you cannot let your client lie on the stand. You cannot keep going if your client is lying. So, you know, it, we're pretty clear-cut on what happens when you're in court. But then I asked my friends, well, what happens if you are a federal uh, employee and you're watching your boss lie to Congress? Do you have that same responsibility to let Congress know that your boss is lying? And the answer I got back from several of my friends was no, because it's a division between the... Uh, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, since that may be a similar answer to other folks may have been given, then I'm wondering how many hearings in the future we, we will be watching where people, before they are seated, will be raising their right hand saying, do you swear that this is the truth and nothing but the truth so help you God? Because if we've got a problem where you have somebody who couldn't say yes or no or lied on the stand, are we now going to be putting them under oath to make sure that we can now take it to court? Interesting point. And well, that brings up the whole, you know, was James Clapper in contempt of Congress? Is 
you know, is that something that they may pursue under possibly Daryl Ice's committee? Well, I, 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 I think that they'll probably start with the intelligence committee, but, but, and, and try to do this behind some of this behind closed doors. He has definitely got some explaining to do with regard to swearing in witnesses. That's an issue that's sort of come and gone, and increasingly witnesses are sworn in, uh, including government witnesses. They didn't swear a clapper in, but I was reading just today that that you don't have to be sworn in to to be charged if you lie. Um, it, it's not that by but the failure to swear in is a license to lie. And uh, and 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 in Clapper's case, uh, he 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 really screwed this up because there were better ways to answer. And now, not only is he trying to figure out how to l reduce the fallout and damage to the to the uh, anti-terrorism enterprise and the U.S. credibility abroad, but he's also got to explain himself and his answer with regard to, to, to Al. It wasn't I wasn't at all surprised that Wyden didn't jump on the at the time. I'm curious as to why he was asking the question in that way because he's a member of the intelligence committee and he would have had ample ways to get this kind of information. It, it, it sounded to me like he was trying to elicit a certain answer, didn't get it, but because of, because of all the, the, uh, the oaths that he has to take to serve on the Intelligence Committee, he wasn't at, at liberty to suddenly stand up and say, you're lying because of this and this and this. But, but what you're saying is that he may have been trying to get it out into the public. That's my sense. And he couldn't bring it out himself. That's That was my sense. And then when it didn't come out, he wasn't sure what to do. But now he's going gangbusters yeah. <laughs> after this whole enterprise and explaining to, to the world, yeah, I gave him the question an hour, a day ahead, and we asked them afterwards if they wanted to clarify. Well, we're... we're we're going to take a break here real quick. When we come back, I want, to, I want to talk about Snowden as an individual and how much are we, in fact, contracting our intelligence community. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands, and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Nah, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town yeah. 
sex to get you around, no. Tell the mailman not to call. Ain't coming home until the fall. And then again, I might not get home at all. Soon as back in town. Oh, that woman's back in town. Oh, my, 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 my. And, and we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 Ash Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're going to continue the discussion here on Backroom Politics about the uh, ever-unfolding scandal involving the NSA and Mr. Edward Snowden, a contractor for the federal contracting company, Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, who was a analyst, an Intel analyst out in Honolulu, Hawaii, where he was making about, according to Booz Allen, $122,000. By the way, Booz Allen uh, today fired Mr. Snowden for cause. Quite a shock there. But he's somewhere yet to be seen. But it, it brings up a big question here in Washington, D.C. Uh, let's first get into the question of, is Snowden a traitor, or is he just a patriot? Uh, you know, or is he I'll, just stupid? Well... My guy suggested. Congressman Al, I'll start with you. Is this guy a traitor, or is he a patriot, or is he just an idiot? We don't know enough yet, but uh, I, 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 I was really struck by this former NSA guy who didn't get very excited about it. He said it was a dumb thing to do. Now, if it was only a dumb thing to do, uh, that's one thing. I suspect it's more, though. Did he scrap? I guess the question I'd have for the gentleman here at the table is, you were around when Watergate happened, and I'm sure that more than one person said the Pentagon Papers was probably the dumbest thing that century. So how does this relate to the Pentagon Papers, and is this the same or different? Well, it brings up, I mean, there are questions of, you know, is is this Watergate all over again? It, you know, is there is there a White House list of enemies that we're listening to through NSA? I would venture to say that after Watergate, no, but that has yet to be determined. We don't know. Uh, Bob Hines, I mean, just when you thought it couldn't get any weirder in the Obama administration, this comes out, but I go back to you. Is, is Snowden a patriot, or is he a traitor, or is he just a moron? I doubt that he's a moron. If I had to, if, if it was my judgment call... I would say he's a traitor. Um, he has obviously been in position to have secured information, something that the government holds fairly close. It doesn't publicize it. And yet at the same time, he feels that he has an opportunity and he is going to disclose it. It seems to me that that is uh, something he ought to be uh, tried for. Uh, I'd have no trouble with him going to jail for a significant amount of time. I think something like that is, uh, is is a bad thing to do. Well, by the way, the Department of Justice today had announced that they are pursuing charges against Edward Snowden, uh, that there will probably be some sort of warrant issued for his arrest. The question is, can we get to him before he goes to a non-extraditable country like Belize? Well, there are also other ways to get him. <laughs> <laughs> Also, also classified. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. You've been watching too much Jason Bourne. But, but and he's not, crap. But it's not classified. I mean, for him to think that he's going to be able to get out of Hong Kong and be able to fly somewhere, yeah. the easiest thing for the U.S. government to do is get, the moment he gets on that plane, they get him. Or the moment he gets from one plane to another, 
that location, they're going to get him. If they've done this enough times with everybody else, he's not getting out of Hong Kong. But you know, you know what the funny thing is? And, and, and David Letterman, of all people, said it last night. He goes, this is a guy who wanted to release this information because he wanted a free state. And where does he go? China. It's amazing to me. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the patriot versus traitor question is an interesting one that people are, are, are talking about. He obviously sees, he seems to see himself as a patriot. He's not a total idiot because he realized he better get the heck out of Dodge, leave the country if he was going to do this, and try to stay on the move. Now, having said that, he picked an odd place to go, and he let people know that, like, 36, 48 hours ago, he was at a particular hotel in Hong Kong. That is not brilliance. Um, is this treason? Um, I don't know. That becomes a legal definition. Is this a breach of the law? Yes. Is it a serious breach of the law? Yes. And there... Should he spend a lot of time in jail? Absolutely, if what we see turns out to be true. I mean, we it, it's alleged, but he he's he's in another category, like like Bradley Manning, whose trial is now well, underway. I want, I, want, I want to bring up and, Bradley and, Manning and these guys. Um, uh, whether they're officially traitors or not, it is behavior that does harm to the United States. I, I, I think Denise raises the interesting question of sort of comparing it to the Pentagon Papers. I was thinking about this, and I saw that Daniel Ellsberg said, oh, this is one of the most courageous acts in 50 years. Um, I'm not sure he's the guy that you'd want endorsing your endorsing behavior. Right. But, but when I think about the, the Pentagon Papers, as I recall them, it was, there was a lot of looking back at what the government was doing, um, and it was embarrassing and damaging this seems to me even more serious than that because this this is something that is ongoing that we're really building out now and it puts in jeopardy our ability to get all the mileage, all of the the results that we're hoping for for the billions we're investing in this enormous data collection enterprise. Bob Hines. I think it's, you know, I don't know whether it's treason or just a criminal act. But that really isn't the question for me. It seems to me the most important thing here is, look, there are always people who for one reason or another are, are prepared to do something like this. Bradley Manning is an example. Uh, we now have uh, Edward Snowden. Now, it seems to me one of the most important things for a government to be able to do is say to anyone who has seen about that, look, you know, if you do this, we're going to find you, we're going to get you, we're going to try you, we're going to put you in jail, and we're going to lose the key. You have to, you, you, you've got to discourage this kind of activity. I mean, you can pretend you're noble because you're, you're, you're showing, you're, you're exposing evil doing by the government. But the fact of the matter is, that ain't the way it's played. We've got to stop this kind of stuff, and the way you stop it is you go get them, you get them in jail, and you put them away. Then he's crap. And the other problem we've got is, there, is all of our friends are now going, what did you guys do? And by our friends, I'm talking about the Israelis, the French, the British, the Spanish. And we're all a little bit jittery today going, what type of our information has been compromised? So when you're talking about intelligence, you've got human intelligence that comes from interactions between humans. You've got signal intelligence. I mean, intelligence comes in a variety of forms, and it comes from a variety of different sources. So if any of our information that we, or any of the information that we have received from other sources has now been compromised, then our sources are now not only dead to us, 
but they're never going to share with us again because they're afraid they're going to be compromised by yet another Bradley Manning or another Snowden. Well, I mean, and it's ironic too. You know, you talk about our foreign partners. You know, the one, the one foreign head of state that had no comment on this, ironically, Vladimir Putin. And the, Ru- and the Russians. The Russians pretty much went, eh, we got nothing. Alan Moore. We're doing wrong. But what Putin said is, does Snowden need a place to live? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. They'd love to have him. We got a Dacia for him right out here in Moscow. Yeah. <laughs> Alan, uh, Congressman now. It, it just seems to me that it would be important to find out what, in fact, he had, what, in fact, he's revealed. Before we put him up in front of a firing squad, I think it would be worth figuring out was this really terribly serious stuff. The act itself is a no-no, but did this guy really get stuff that is is uh, hugely damaging, or did he just piddle around the edge? Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, it's the same question that, that we asked after Bradley Manning, and Bradley Manning, all he did was just release some emails that were classified correspondence between State Department, Foggy Bottom, White House, and the embassies. That's about it. This seems well, like a whole new level. That's about it. It was hundreds of thousands of communications that Bradley Manning released, and some of some of which it, uh, identified uh, U.S. assets who uh, who apparently including Denise Krupp, who, who had who had to, who either had to leave what, their jobs, and I think in some cases uh, some people were killed. Um, very, very serious uh, uh, propositions, uh, and uh, and I think in the case of, of Snowden, as, as Al says, we don't yet even know everything he's got, but what we know is the damage that he has done already is significant and real and a problem for this country, for our credibility with other countries, for the U.S. companies that were involved, how many how many Europeans are going to sign up for Facebook? Now, maybe we don't really care, right? Because who cares? Those guys have a lot of money. Those companies care, and America cares that U.S. companies have credibility. There's a lot of collateral damage that we can identify, and more things we're still learning going forward. And, and actually, I, that, that's, ooh, that's a good one. Uh, when you're starting to talk about the Verizons of the world, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, they're not only regulated here in the United States, but the other um, entity that they're very concerned about is the European Union. And the European Union has some incredibly stringent privacy rules and regulations. So my question would be, what is the European Union now going to be doing with the United States saying, hey, wait a second, you know, what were you doing? Were you doing this with any of our folks? And... We, well, we have a bigger we have a bigger issue closer to home. The Canadians, the Canadians, the Canadian privacy laws are incredibly stringent, a la EU. You can't even install a video camera without getting federal approval from the Privacy Commission. They've got to be CSIS, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, has got to be going nuts about this. Bob, does this put another ding in the armor of credibility that we have? With our foreign intelligence partners? Well, it doesn't do us any good, does it? <laughs> look at it. I mean, we're talking about I mean, almost every place you look, somebody's upset about what's happened. And unless we get a handle on it, we're going to have a great deal of difficulty trying to do uh, some of the things we feel we need to do because a lot of our friends aren't going to be willing to uh, help us. We're just going to be we're going to be in effect ostracized, if you will. 
it's amazing. Alan Moore. Well, on the secrecy question, though, when 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 we have our fresh uh, when we have our press club um, uh, colleague here later, and I may I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to be here for that segment. I I hope you'll get a chance to to dig a little deep into whether or not journalists have any responsibility at all. Not to now, report the. To, to withhold, to discuss. I mean, a lot of the big major news enterprises, the major newspapers and, and, and TV news, they always, when they get stuff, they're always looking for it. They get it, and they, they engage in conversations with the government. We have this. We are intend to release this, but we want to give you a heads up. And they'll say, oh, my gosh, can you say this? Can you do this? Can you leave this out? Can you delay this kind of thing? I don't have a sense that The Guardian did any of that, one, and two, although the Post did do some of that, but once the Guardian was out, the Post had to move. There's another curious thing. There's a documentary filmmaker who was in the chain, a friend of Snowden, and who who got a co-byline in the Post, curiously, and it makes me wonder, is she trying to launder herself to become a journalist to get First Amendment protections? She's not a journalist as far as I know, but she was part of this. So is she a conspirator with Snowden, or is she a journalist? There's a whole host of, of interesting questions, and the press can't have, especially the press that's now all over the Internet, and anybody who wants to can call himself or herself a journalist. It, whether they should get a free ride all the time, every time, I think that's another question but, that but this, deserves... Some reflection but, and discussion, and, and that's a great point. I, and I think we'll bring that up to Angela when she's on. But you know, there's also a bigger aspect to this that's now coming out in the press is the fact that he was not even a government employee; he was a contractor. Uh, you know, when we talk about contractors, you're talking about the large five defense contractors: General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, Booz Allen, uh, SAIC. You know, every major federal contractor that I know of, that I've worked with in the past has had intelligence sector business where we're providing what we would call butts in seats. Is, is that the right way to go? Go ahead. Here's the, I've, I've been saying, I was going to say something about that uh, uh, in my comment. The thing is, is, all these contractors have to be quaking in their boots to figure out, do we have anybody that's like a Stoges? That's number one. Number two, I would hope that the government... And the Congress is thinking about how we can tighten up things so that we don't get these kinds of people out there who, who have the potential of doing all this. Yeah, but this is a guy, Bob Hines, that's gone through a full back, you know, background check, a full investigation in some instances, and more likely in his case, a full-scope polygraph examination. This guy had a high-level top-secret clearance. He was investigated and deemed trustworthy enough to get that clearance. But he was still a contractor. There's, there, He was not under the quote-unquote purview of federal employment rule. Are we contracting too much of our intelligence community out at this point? Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, but, you know, you don't you know, remind yourself, Snowden didn't go into this thinking, oh, my God, this is my chance to do something. You know, I'm, I'm going to get this job, and I'm going to get this information. I can I can leak it if I want to. I don't like it. I mean, it's obvious. You know, it, I, to me, it's it seems that here's a guy who got this responsible job. 
He's got information that is, at, at some level, very secure. It's supposed to be kept that way. And he probably, as he was working his way along through, the, through his, his career, he got upset. He felt something was wrong. And he felt it was his duty to blow it. Blow it out and blow it up. And it isn't that he was a bad guy going in. It's that he, he developed an attitude. He developed a feeling when he was in there that he didn't like what he saw going on. Yeah, but, but so it's awfully hard to say, you know, you know, anybody, whether they're in the government or in a private sector working for the government, could have that kind but of problem. But we have to look at I mean, when we look at Manning, Manning was a private first class who happened to have a security clearance enough to have him the, the, uh, being a system administrator to have access to this. When we look at Snowden, Snowden was a system administrator for Booz Allen under contract to the NSA. These are not senior level people. These are, in many instances, in the case at least of Snowden and uh, Manning, young, uh, maybe looking for stardom perhaps, maybe looking for popularity, I, I don't know what would drive somebody unless in his mind and in Manning's mind, they thought, hey, I'm going to do what's right for the country. Alan Moore. In the world, in the world of secrets, whether it's government secrets or corporate secrets, you're only as strong as your weakest link, A, and B, you're only as strong as, in, in terms of damage, the system you create. So what you've got here is a guy who is obviously a weaker link. It could have been a, it could have been a government employee. It could have been a contract employee. And, and then that leads to the question, how much did he know? How, how compartmentalized was he? Um, was he able to break through the walls that were surrounding him because they weren't strong enough? Did he have uh, colleagues that he shared information with? I don't know. I, what, I, what I don't believe is we know yet enough to say, uh-oh, Outside contracting is bad. Bring it back inside. The reason we contract to the outside is because we can't get the skills at the pay levels um, that you need to get all of this work done. And so increasingly you contract out. But there are hundreds of thousands of outside contractors with top secret clearance. It, it's, it's about a third of the total. It's a huge number, and it's sort of staggering to think, wait, one and a half million people have top secret clearances? Well, God help us, because there's a lot of weak links in that group, whether it's inside government or outside, which is why we put so much emphasis then on the system to, to, to wall things off from each other. But, but Congressman Al, you know, Congress has got to be looking at this saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. We are literally now having our intelligence infrastructure being largely supported by for-profit companies that are putting in young people, and they're making money off of this. Does this not raise a couple of issues inside Congress, in your opinion? Well, it, it does to me. But, but of course, I'm a Democrat, and I tend to think that government should be run by government. Uh, not uh, using the, the private sector to do things that government should be doing itself. So my answer to that would be, yeah, that would be considered. But Denise Crap. I'm going to go back to what you just talked about, and, and, and talking about youth and experience. Um, 
you know, one of my duties when I was in the military was the classified security officer. I was the CSO. And I can tell you that, that it was a collateral duty. It wasn't my main duty. And it was the one that I was the most stressed about. I, I mean, because I was in charge of the save. I had to make sure that, you know, if my boss needed information, I got the information out. I put it in. If my boss needed something, you know, for me to pull off a computer, I pulled it off. But it was and this is pre nine eleven too. This is pre nine eleven. This is when the Coast Guard was still doing drug runners, and we were still doing a bunch of other stuff. But it was the most stressful part of my job, and you know, and I took that stress um, seriously. And I was also older, and I understood what was going on. If you're giving this type of information to a nineteen or twenty year old who doesn't fully understand what he or she is looking at, then we've got a problem. And my and, and what I'm trying to say is. Maybe we shouldn't be giving this type of information or type of access to a 19 or 20 year old. Maybe we should be giving this access to people who fully understand the responsibility of, of what you are holding and the responsibility of protecting it. Does that mean that I'm happy with that we, you know, took all this information from Verizon? No. But what I'm also not happy about is the fact that we're not properly protecting the information that we do have. Go ahead, Carl Tubin. The other the other question that comes to mind is the reporter who who reported this. Uh, I have seen him. Um, um, pictured as someone who wanted to reform the world, and how much in the story did he he uh, do one way or another to, to make uh, Snowden, um, you know, to, to also uh, compound what Snowden has said? And 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 is there any? I don't think there's any way of bringing him in to say. What you know? What did what did he tell you? What did how much of this is you? How much of this is him? Well, it, it, it's not just the, the Guardian, but the Washington Post was also uh, publishing documents. And I don't know if you guys saw the uh, there, there was an article by the Washington Post on Saturday. They, they published the first page of a uh, presidential policy directive. It was a top secret document, it's PPD 20, dealing with cyber warfare. Um, and I don't think the Washington Post fully understands what you can glean from merely looking at the first page of a top-secret document. I'm, I'm sure when they published it, they thought, okay, this, this is just a bunch of names and it's, you know, it's a bunch of you know, uh, departments. But you can glean a lot from that type of information if you know how these types of documents are produced and you know how they are used. So we also need to be thinking about if we're going to be taking pictures of these first pages and putting them in the press view and the purview of the public, how are we doing this and why are we doing this? Bob Hines, it, it could be years before we see how damaging this uh, play, this situation with Snowden, the NSA, and The Guardian plays out. Uh, but it, it does bring into question, as many on the Hill and many in the administration have said, that this is now a big breach of national security. This does put American citizens and people here in America at risk. Well, what I said earlier is what I what I fundamentally believe. It's a violation of law. If, whether you're talking, you know, not season or you know treason or not, it's a violation of law. You got to pursue these people as as vigorously as you can and put them away for a long time because, again, we have a whole lot of people who are who have this information. Until we, if we don't change our system. We're going to continue every once in a while to have somebody who, for whatever reason, decides that he or she is going to uh, expose information that should not be exposed. And they have to recognize that it's going to be, number one, they're going to be pursued, number one, they're going to be apprehended, and number two, three, they're going to go to jail for a long time. 
And that is the best defense we're going to have because there's no way we're going to, I don't know, let's say if we have 100,000 um, uh, contractors, I mean, we're not going to add 100,000 experts to work to the government all, overnight and, and build a lot of buildings and put them in it. We're going to keep using contractors. Well, it, it, we're going to be monitoring this story for a while to come, and we'll bring this up, obviously, with Angela Keene when she joins us. Uh, when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the immigration bill that's starting to move forward. Senate today passed it, uh, uh, passed it uh, 82 to 15 in the Senate to take the bill up on the floor of the Senate. We're going to talk about that and how big and how important is an immigration reform bill when we come back for our second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Island Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
that one more once. Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. And we are right now in the midst of happy hour, where we order our drinks, cut our cigars open, and take the show home. And we're going to bring up another big piece of almost developing news out of Washington, D.C. The Senate has voted 82 to 15 to take up the Gang of Eight immigration bill. Uh, for debate on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Uh, this has been a while coming, uh, but it has drawn some strange bedfellows, and it's gotten opposition from people who we thought would have been all over it. Number one, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio is now taking a little bit of a bigger look and not exactly on board with the immigration bill that he helped start push. Uh, first off, Denise Krepp. Let's look at you and, and give us a little bit of what's in this immigration bill that's of note that we should take a look at. Actually, Justin, I'm going to punt on, on, on this one. You are. I am. And to be very honest with you, I'm punting because I spent more time looking at Turkey today than I did on immigration. Good. So I know oh, more. Okay. I'm your colleague here. What what is important? What are the important facts? You know, I want to commend my colleague for punting, <laughs> as, opposed, as opposed to coming out with some blather that I had to correct. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So thank you. Thank you. We're trying to establish credibility here, folks. Okay. Alan Moore, how was it? What are the big? I mean, we've we've heard pathways. Yeah, there's, kind of, uh, there's kind of there's kind of three big things here. One, what do you do immediately? Right. With all these 11 million or 12 million or 10 or 13 million people who are here. Right. And what do you do with them? And and one of the things the bill does is it says we can make you legal quickly. Step forward, pay any back taxes, take care of any legal problems you've got. Then you're legal. The next part, point two in this bill is amp up border security and get it to a level of effectiveness that will trigger some other rights for for uh, the uh, the undocumented immigrants or illegal immigrants, pick your term. People argue about what to, to call these folks that the American economy is so dependent on. So you once you've got the border security working in a way that meets the, the criteria in the law, then you start the 13-year pathway to citizenship right. that the bill includes. You can call it now, is any of this amnesty? It's not clear what amnesty means because, because uh, depending upon your point of view, this is an amnesty or this is definitely not amnesty. It's a long way to citizenship. It's a short path to being legal in America, but you do have to, to do some stuff. And 
we have to show that the border security will be enhanced. Well, let's, let's, that's the heart. That's of the heart of it. The proposal that's out there. The devil is in the details. There are people who say, no, you're not going to, you shouldn't, it's still wrong to reward people who came here illegally. And, and uh, some folks are never going to get over that. And others are going to say the border security requirements are, are not tight enough well, or they're too tight. We'll get to that in a second. Congressman Al, you had a comment. Yeah. Dare we think that this is an indication that Congress might work? that there could be compromises that will move things ahead. Perfect bill? No. No bill is ever perfect. But we haven't done anything on this, and it's clearly an issue on which something must be done. And the the two sides that, that disagree most strongly don't want to compromise, some significant people, however, are making some. Well, there's 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 two surprises on the Republican side that people are looking at. Number one, uh, Senator Kirk out of Illinois was actually opposed to this. He's been long seen as somebody who would be a uh, a supporter of changes in immigration law and in, in border security. Uh, he said it it didn't handle border security enough. And then you have John Cornyn from the border state of Texas who says, hey, you know what? We're glad that they take a border security first, then citizenship later. But when we look at, or go ahead, Denise well, Crowd. Here's my question, Justice. What, what truly is border security? I mean, is this just, we don't like Mexicans? Well, I mean, is that what the euphemism is? Because I can tell you, because after working in Homeland Security for many years, there is a much larger, longer, more porous border than that which we have with Mexico. And, and that's, that's Canada. Canada. Right. So let, let's not, you know, if we're going to call this border security, then we call this Mexico, Canada, and the nice little water that surrounds us, not just because we don't like people don't look like that. Well, but, but I, I will say, you know, one of the things when we talk about border security, you know, you know, how do we get operational control of the border has been something that they've talked about for years since 9-11. It was part of the Secure Border Initiative. That failed on a triumphant scale. Getting operational control of the border, nobody's been able to define that. And, and that's a key point. We're never, I mean, just to say that we're going to be able to stop every single person that comes into the United States is a bogus bunch of BS. And, and the reason I'll call it that way, and yes, I realize this is a family show, is that would mean that we would have to do, you know, build a wall, a wall between ourselves and Mexico and a wall between ourselves and Canada. We don't have enough steel in this world to create the wall. We don't have enough concrete in this world. Congressman Al. In addition to which, I remember a wonderful cartoon that had <clears throat> that had a uh, 14-foot wall, and on the Mexican side of it, they had a, a guy setting up shop, Jose's 15-foot ladders. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, uh, it ain't easy. Go ahead, yeah, uh, Denise, Denise, you might have been better off just staying out of this. <laughs> uh, because nobody is suggesting 100% border stoppage. Mm. How they calculate is, is curious and strange. They talk about, about stopping 70% of those who try to get in or 80% or 90%. But if fewer get in, 90% of what? 80% of what? It is a... It Come is, on. It is, whoa, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I want Justin to jump in. Well, days on the Coast Guard because you and I both know those stats can be off. And, and, and all I'm saying is no one is saying zero. 
everybody is acknowledging how you measure is very well, complicated well, we and difficult. But, but I also wanted to say something about Canada versus Mexico. Mexico, all in Central, Mexico, Central America, and South America come in over the southern border. Uh-huh. That's where the, the, the numbers come from. So if you're going to go after the size of the problem, you have to look south. We're, we're not inundated by huge numbers of people coming but, in from but Canada. Let me, let me, let me jump in. Let me, let me jump in. your money, you've got to spend it where the bigger part of the problem well, is. Let me, let, me, let me jump in on this. Number one, we, we, we've heard for now a decade since border security became a top priority about operational control. America has to gain operational control of the border. Nobody, nobody can define operational control because every time somebody in the House says, well, we'll give them a metric, we'll say that you stop 75% of illegal aliens coming in from all sides. You know, we talk about the land border with Mexico. We forget Canada. And then we also forget, you know, we have short memories where we talk about the water side. We have the, uh, the, the human trafficking from China on the West Coast. We have the migration interdiction going on with Haiti, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, down the Caribbean. And we've got Russian human trafficking going on in the Northeast. These are all issues. How do we get operation control of the border? We cannot, and I know I'm supposed to be moderating. I'm going to put on my funding hat for a second. It is silly. It is silly for the Senate to put forward any immigration bill that talks about strengthening border security. There's not a single mention of the alien migrant interdiction operations that the Coast Guard does. That is a bigger problem than what we have on putting more boots in the, the Mexican border. That's crazy. We're never going to be able to identify operational control of the border, and that's what they're pushing in this bill. That's my take, at least. There. I'm putting my moderator hat on. Uh, Bob Hines, go ahead. Does that mean we can't hit you? Yeah. I will. No, you can hit no, you can hit back at me. I just reserve the right to on the moderator. I can do that. Okay. And you've just done it. Wow. I went, I went total John McLaughlin on that. Uh, Boy. Go ahead, Bob I wouldn't, I wouldn't call you that, but total, I agree. You total who? Exactly. Bob Hines. That's worse than Rivaldo Rivera. Bob Hines, you got to comment. Do you remember it's, what it was? Yes, it's all well. It's it's all well and good uh, to say that you know we should worry about uh, all the things you mentioned. That is not the problem. That is the biggest problem we have. Most of the most of the problem comes across through the southern borders. Number one, they're trying to solve that problem. I would that's disagree. That's a good idea. I would disagree. Now, but the reality is, the reality is, we that's as far as we can go. You can't do everything in one bill. They're trying to bite off an awful lot, and I'm amazed that they've got the kind of a vote they had on the floor, 82 to 15. I think that's a, at least a good sign that the Senate is prepared to seriously negotiate among themselves and try to find a solution that will at least stem a flow and keep it to a dribble, if nothing else, to get, well, Congressman to get started on this issue. You know, no bill ever is perfect as it's introduced. Exactly. We have a whole process with which we can take up other considerations and other concerns, but you've got to get started. 
We have not been able to get started on this issue until now. Uh, and so I think this is a very good sign, and we'll see how the, the, the bill changes as it goes through the legislative no. process. Alan, more than Denise Crabb. Just a word on how good a sign this is. Remember, the biggest problem that Republicans in the Senate have had with Harry Reid is he has tried to bring bills forward without the ability to have amendments. In this particular case, they bring the bill up without those external controls. This is wide open from an amendment standpoint, and many Republicans, including uh, leader uh, Mitch McConnell and others, have said, give us the ability to let the Senate work its will. We're not going to stop you from bringing bills up. They will have ample opportunity to filibuster down the road if they don't like the direction things are going. They're going to still need 60 votes to pass a bill, and some of the people that said they were in that 82 who said, let's take it up, will never support a bill. But what it brings, and I know Denise has got an important thing, but what we need is to get started, and what we were, where we were stuck was everybody saying, I've got the perfect idea, and if it's not that, I won't play the game. And now we're starting to say, well, this is not perfect, and probably everybody has different reasons for that, but let's get started and start to work out the case. Right. And Denise. The, I mean, here's, here's the question I've got. All right. And, and this is truly inside baseball, as you guys all know. We're now at June um, 11th, so we're going to be in session for maybe another two and a half weeks, if we're lucky, before the July 4th recess, when Congress goes out of session for at least a week, maybe two weeks. Then they're going to come back for maybe another two weeks. Then they go out for the full month of August. So if we know this and we know where they're going to be and we also know that they're not going to be talking about immigration and only immigration, how are they going to be trying how are they going to maneuver this bill so they actually can get it to move forward and not have it stall in between the periods when people go home and get yelled at? Carl Tubin. Well, the other the other big problem is the Senate might be able to get a bill, but then it goes to the House where the Tea Party people have to negotiate with the leader, and then and 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 that you've got that whole ball of wax. Now I know there's a gang of eight in the House that's working on a bill, but you know where are they? How are they? And and that could you don't know. It's like, Al, it's like Al said. Yeah. At least we've begun. Yeah. But here's we've got a bill on the Senate yeah. floor, and we're going to be debating it for at least two weeks. And with any luck, at the end of that time, there will be a bill that has 60 votes. And that will generate some momentum, and then we'll be able to. But, but, the, but the conversations the about the but, House will be more relevant. But here's the thing: is you're talking about a bill, and 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 Senator David Vitter of Louisiana pointed this out today, with a 6.3 trillion dollar price tag on it, that's going to hit the House floor, and it's going to get shot all to hell. I am so glad you brought up the 6.3 trillion dollar price tag. Senator David Vitter saying that. You brought it up. I did bring it up. And that was a study that, a quote study with massive quotes around it, uh, that was put out by the Heritage Foundation and was thoroughly and completely discredited by every legitimate economist, government analyst who took a look at it and prompting Jim DeMint, now a new head of, the, of Heritage, and the other folks to backtrack and backpedal and say, well, yeah, but we meant this. 
No, no, well, we didn't intentionally leave that out. And we Are you saying heritage that. is a shill for the Republican Party? No, I'm saying no. that that's shrill for a bunch of idiots no. called Jim DeMette and his friends. Easy, that's, easy. Whoa, 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 I'm saying whoa, that that study has been pretty thoroughly discredited as a piece of garbage, and I'm surprised that Vitter chose to bring it up. Al, I didn't know those facts. Because you guy with facts. The, name, the fact that Bitter's name was on it told me all of that. Wow. Oh, <laughs> Lord. Uh, but anyway, you know, but you also have uh, Senator Jeff Sessions, and this is according to our friends over at Politico. Uh, he's quoted in Politico as saying, the only thing that's guaranteed to work is the amnesty uh, in his opposition to the bill. Even he is not totally convinced that this bill has any merit to it. Uh this is going to be an interesting fight, even in the Senate, Bob Hine. Well, Jeff Sessions has been opposed to any immigration bill for a long, long time. The mere fact that he, in effect, is saying that it would take 13 years and you've got to pay your fines, you've got to pay your taxes, you, you, can't, be any, you can't do any criminal activity, and after 13 years you can get in the line to, to become a citizen, if that's amnesty... I don't understand it because that's half a lifetime to many people. Now, just think about that. Anybody who calls that amnesty is would I cannot imagine what they would saw would, would think would be a fair deal. So when you say seven years, when you say don't involve yourself in criminal activity, the fact that they came over here legally is criminal activity. Yeah, oh, that's nonsense. Why is that nonsense, Congressman? Now, because there's criminal activity like killing people and robbing banks and doing things like that. And then there is this, and it is, it is totally different in nature. It is against the law, to be sure, but it is not. So it's selective enforcement. No, it's not criminal activity in the normal I suppose, sense. So I suppose, Mr. Moderator, you think it's amnesty. I, I do think it's amnesty. I, I Look, you know, are having... You, which hat are you wearing? Yeah. I'm putting my pundit hat on. <laughs> oh, God. Hey, Can you put your moderator hat back on again? My God. Please, please. You, you're putting it on too often. Fine. <laughs> I will stop. No, I want to make the statement, though. You know, I, you know, I, I have a sister... My sister-in-law is a, is a British national uh, who got her green card and going through the process took her almost a decade to go through the process. She came here legally as the wife of my brother. She came here and it took her a decade to do this. How did she get get only a decade? A Brit? Yeah, exactly. Why would we want one of those? <laughs> really? Really? Wow. Here we go. Back to my back to my original statement. But you know, here is here's a person who came here. Here's did we a fight a war with those Yeah, guys? we fought a war with those <laughs> bastards. Oh, good Lord. They We've killed lost. Americans. I've lost control. <laughs> Bob, the reality is, when you see the line of people who are legally trying to come to this country, either for work purposes, to be with family, you see that and you go, wait a minute. There is a process. And for us to sit there and say, just because you were able to swim the Rio Grande or the fact that you were able to cut across from Manitoba into Montana. Or you find a 15-foot ladder. <laughs> exactly. That that's still, not what the bill that says. Is still, but, but wait a minute. The fact that they came here knowingly and willfully, knowing that they did not follow that process, into itself is a criminal act. Bob. That's true. But the fact so, of the matter is, 
that we the legislation that is in place is a reasonably fair way to deal with a situation where you have 11 million plus people who have come in illegally, illegally. and they're working in the farms, they're working in the construction industry, they are for the most part non-criminals, good family people. You would agree with that, I'm sure. I would. Now, just because they are not meeting the legal law, they're not meeting the current law, there's a new law proposed that is going to say to them, you're not going to get to go to the head of the line, you're going to the back of the line, and only after 13 years. So I'm not so much worried about them overwhelming us and suddenly you know, being a whole lot more of them. They are going to have a long-term effort to get in here, and I think it's very reasonable. Well, it, it saves it, except for the Cubans. And that's why I think it's going to be really interesting to see what Menendez, your favorite person, Mario... Thank you for bringing him up. No, stop. Don't slide them up uh, yet. Rubio. Uh, I almost slipped my mind. As well as Ileana Rosleyton in the house. I mean, everybody else, if you come in, you're coming in illegally. But if you're a Cuban and you land on dry land, you can come here. So let's see what they do if all of a sudden we change the rules on the Cubans. Which will never happen. You are, you are, that, that will In fact, what we've got is, we've, we, with regard to the Cubans, it happens to be the law. So, your, your point is these are lawbreakers. They are lawbreakers. What does amnesty mean? In my mind, amnesty means a full pardon for something. This bill does not propose a full pardon. It suggests that people who have broken the law, who are here illegally or without documents, have to do some things to make life right. It's not a free, open, unlimited pardon, which is how I define amnesty, it is saying, okay, you will be legal if you do these things, and then we're going to wait until we clean up the border in whatever way, in their great grand wisdom, the Congress decides is a fair measure or a reasonable measure that can get 60 votes in the Senate, and then you can start the pathway Let me, let me put to, this out there. Yeah. Let me put this out there. So you say, okay, full pardon, whatever you want to call it. It, do we cut off, if you're here, the second the president finishes signing the A in Obama, and after that, you're still illegal? If you cross the border after that, do you automatically get amnesty status? No, 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 no. It's all, it, this thing is going to have a date, and the date is going to be sometime in the past. You're going to have to prove that you are, along with everything else, that you have been here since before that cutoff date. We're still going to have undocumented, illegals, pick your term, in America, because this doesn't include everyone. You're going to have people who who have a criminal record. They're not going to come forward and say, oh, can I clean up my criminal record? No, there's still going to be a whole underground, but the great bulk of these people would have a chance to be legal, but not a, not amnesty, not a full pardon. Congressman, I'm going to give you the last word on this okay. one. I want to go back to what was one of the first words uh, that Denise Said, are we against them because they're Mexicans? I think that there are a lot of reasons to take seriously about how we handle this. But I believe that the fact that these are Mexicans is a big part of the resistance. It's a kind of racism. They're all lazy. They're all. Have you ever, ever seen them working here? Have you ever seen them working in Mexico? These are hard-working people. They're not lazy. 
but the 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 racist image of Mexicans is they're they're lazy and slovenly and so forth, and it's simply not true. And I think a lot that is driving the resistance of this is racism, and we shouldn't forget it. Interesting point. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this as it goes forward. Uh, when we come back, special guest, Angela Gray Keen, the president of the National Press Club, will be joining us. Oh, have we got a lot of questions for her. This is going to be a good segment. We'll be back in two minutes. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
Uh, we're back here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. I now have a bloody nose from my friend Alan Moore. Good Lord. Uh, for we're Joining us right now is our special guest. She is the president of the National Press Club and a journalist with the Bloomberg Organization. She is Angela Gary King. Angela, thank you for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. Oh, this is fantastic. First of all, there is so much that we've got to ask you. Let's start off first, though, with the latest news here in Washington, the big, the big fury over NSA and the Guardian putting out the uh, the article regarding uh, Snowden's leaks from NSA. You know, we were talking about it earlier, and we were looking at as a journalist. When you look at what the Guardian did versus what a domestic journalism organization would do, is there culpability in what the Guardian did as far as you know responsibility and reporting, or was this a shotgun effort by them to just gain notoriety outside the borders of the U.S.? What, what the National Press Club looks at is whistleblower rights. So we stand for the rights of government whistleblowers to bring wrongdoing out. What we don't arbitrate is who is a whistleblower, who is not a whistleblower, and who is disclosing information that shouldn't be disclosed. So we're giving our award this summer to the whistleblower. We're giving a Freedom in the Press Award that normally goes to an individual to the whistleblower in general. And we decided this before all the events of the last couple of days, so that's made it very much uh, extra interesting as uh, this NSA situation has has uh, unfolded, but I think it's a little early to say exactly what the motivation has been um, for for the newspaper. Uh, the Washington Post did an interesting first-person column with the uh, reporter who'd been in touch with with Mr. Snowden, and I think they've done a really good job of explaining where they came from, how they're uh, deciding what to report and what to publish. Okay, fair enough. When, when we look at when we look at the events surrounding this, this has obviously taken off a lot of the news cycles mm-hmm. here in the past 48 hours, especially as a journalist. When you get something that is a possible issue of national security, when it's an issue of uh, corporate intelligence, whatever, do you as a journalist or does the National Press Club have a standard that says, look, you got to look at the risk versus the reward when reporting this? The National Press Club doesn't get into journalism ethics uh, in any specificity. We right. obviously have members from all over the uh, the world. We right. have about 3,000 members, so we let the news organizations set their own ethics policies. As a journalist in general, yes, of course, it's incumbent upon the reporter, their editors, to make sure that what you're reporting is accurate. That, that's all you have to stand on is your credibility, and it's it's something that you um, need to take a, a big responsibility for. If you're given information from a government source, from a corporate source, uh, I think there's a lot of reason to be cautious before publishing. doesn't mean you shouldn't publish it, but it means that you need to verify the accuracy, the credibility of the source before you do. Alan Moore. Yeah, can I ask you a question on that? You say accuracy is the is the hallmark. Obviously, that's that's sort of a given. But what about the uh, the sharing of secrets that could do harm? Uh, it's it's a delicate area. Obviously, we go back uh, many years in this country uh, with these sorts of secrets. So it's not uh, it's not something new that we're uh, encountering. Although obviously, it's, it's it's been renewed in the past few weeks. 
but but there are times and places where it's important to publish um, information that also may uh, be to the detriment of the government, but there are times when you want to walk the fine line and hold things back as well. You know, when when we look at, at, at journalism over the years, I mean, you, you've been in journalism for a while, when we look at it, going even back to uh, the days of the FBR administration, you know, there, there was almost an, an, you know, please don't think of it, there was an honor among thieves that said, like, for example, uh, one of the great quotes in Aaron Sorkin's movie, An American President, is uh, when Martin Sheen looks at Michael Douglas and says, if there had been a CNN 50 years ago, we never would have elected a president in a wheelchair. Right. Uh, they took it upon themselves. They now, we now find you know, some of the uh, honor among thieves in, in the JFK question of mm -hmm. what he did, his, his, his physical pains and some of his ex, you know, extracurricular activities. But we, we've seen it now progress. Are you seeing a progression of getting the information out versus working with, like, let's say, an administration as to what you may or may not report? Is there more freedom in the press now than there was, let's say, 40 years ago? I don't think there's more freedom in the press. Uh, I like to think there's not less either. Uh, but it's a completely different news cycle. Back uh, in FDR, in JFK, in Nixon, uh, even in Reagan, it was it was a, a news cycle that was a 24-hour cycle, and they, it, that, that happened once in the 24-hour cycle. Now it's all the time, 24-7, not, not once a day. Uh, there's obviously constantly television news, and websites are always updating, and then you have social media as well, and that can be information put out by news organizations or just by people with, um, with knowledge of whatever is going on. So it's, it's a very different situation today than it was back then, and there is a rush to get things out to be first. But I don't think that being first should sacrifice the need to be accurate. Bob Hines, you had a question. Uh, going back to the question of information that mm -hmm. you that someone may have that could be damaging to the uh, security of the United States, are there criteria uh, either broadly in the industry or, or is it company to company, or how is it assessed that? We 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 have to report this rather than we should hold it and do some more checking. How do you right. how do you decide that? It's definitely company by company, and I don't think it's a responsibility that any media news organization takes lightly. It's it's very important, and it's not every day that reporters or editors come into possession of this sorts of information. This is a rare occurrence, not Thank something God. that you you know constantly have uh, in your email box every every single day. So it is something that, that gets discussed uh, at the highest levels of news organizations. This wouldn't be an individual reporter making a decision. This would definitely be a team decision from whatever news outlet um, might be in this discussions. Alan Moore. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about, about uh, how much the definition of journalism has changed, how many different entities there are. And, and, and in the old days, if you will, the major newspapers, the major uh, television news operations would have a process to assess, consider, reflect, decide, interact with the government, give them a warning, modify the story, hold back on pieces. Um, and and uh, that was pretty much common. Now you've got these sort of fly-by-night organizations. I don't know whether we think whether anybody thinks of WikiLeaks, for example, as a journalistic enterprise. WikiLeaks did. Julian Assange, he would just take whatever Bradley Manning sent him and put it out there. 
And, uh, and I've not been impressed with the way the Guardian's uh, main reporter has been handling this. He seems to, to be uh, liking the camera and self-promotion. And there are all sorts of smaller Internet enterprises, and I just worry that the standards are changing in the wrong direction. As you say, it's not every day that a big story comes along and so on, and you really usually have to dig and have established relationships. And, uh, and I've had very close friends who who were, were in the business, and they would be horrified at some of what they see happening today. And, I, and I, it, it's got to be a challenge for all of journalism. It is. Uh, it's hard to define what is a journalist because it changes, and, and as you say, it changes quickly. Uh, I think nobody would dispute the, the major television networks, the wire services, the big newspapers, um, even you know, newer media, Politico, and those sorts of um, Matt Drudge. established websites. Matt Drudge is an aggregator. Um, Matt Drudge is an aggregator. He's collecting news from all sorts of sources, yes. but he's not producing we, it himself. Well, this brings up a good question. Is, you know, we're seeing a lot more okay. of younger people, more tech-savvy people, mm -hmm. you know, college oh, students, high school students, where originally, you know, when I grew up, it was, you know, you had your major local paper, and then you had Harry Razor, you had John Chancellor, and you had uh, Walter Cronkite as your main sources of news. Now, a majority of children, a majority of younger people are getting their news sources from uh, from blogs, from the internet. Uh, the 24-hour news cycle has created a whole new level of ease of information, but. Are you seeing that in politics, for example? We've, we've said this, I've said this in several speeches I've given uh, to political science students, that the 24-hour news cycle helps promote the, uh, the non-civility, the, the, the partisanship on the Hill and in Washington, as opposed to being a tool to use for bipartisanship. Is that accurate? Uh, unfortunately, it may be. There's, there's certainly... A lot of information is just spewed out there. You know, people post on Twitter without giving it a lot of thought. Um, same, same with a lot of social media outlets, blogs. Doesn't mean that there aren't blogs that are good news outlets. There are, and and there will likely be more as the uh, types of media that people use evolve, as we've seen happen uh, in the past 10 to 20 years. But, but I like to think that there will still be a demand for for good journalism, for trustworthy information. You Sources like backroom politics. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> because we're so even-handed and fair. Yeah, we are even-handed and fair. Congressman Al, you had a question for Angela. This is this is an old old issue. How, how, how do you how do you get some responsibility out of the media without interfering with the media's First Amendment? And one of the things that's been proposed over the years is a news council. This would be a, an, an independent agency that would have some news people on it, would have some other people on it, to whom anybody who felt aggrieved by a news story could bring their complaint to that and, and get a judgment. That, that group would have no authority to censor, have no authority to penalize, it would merely publish its findings as to whether the, the, the article in question was accurate or not. That has been universally opposed by the news media, uh, CBS and the lead, as I recall at one time, uh, and yet it seems to me to be an absolute 
I, 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 I must admit, I was a 16-year congressman, so I have had my congress. And an Emmy Award-winning broadcaster, mind you. <laughs> in the news area, amazingly enough. Uh, but but I, 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 I've been really trashed by the news media from time to time um, in, in ways that I think a, a news... Uh, uh, a news council would find for me. Why is there such an incredible resistance among the news media, particularly now that you've got all this plethora of, of less responsible ones than NBC, CBS, New York Times, Washington Post, Bloomberg, and what have you, around? It would seem to me it would be to their advantage to have something like that. Angela? What's, what? Where? Not, not Angela, let her answer. No, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm pointing to her to answer. answer. <laughs> my, my home state of Minnesota actually has had a news council. So that, that is one aberration in, uh, in a sea of, of other places that, as you correctly say, have opposed the idea of news councils. But Minnesota has had one. It's been you know, moderately successful, one might say. I don't think it's gone gangbusters, but, but it is a concept that has been tried there. Um, and and it's gone on for a while. Uh, I think that it is important to have checks and balances for everything, for journalists included. Uh, like you said, news organizations haven't been enthusiastic for news councils. Probably, the major argument against it that I have heard over the years is that you put a chill on reporting. Now, my response to that is: Do you do you not think? Free and unfettered reporting on politicians doesn't put a chill on them. It does, and sometimes to the good, but not always. It also encourages demagoguery and a bunch of other things that, uh, so forth and so on. If, if I, I understand, if if it's if it's if it puts a chill on the very aspects of government, how come a, a little chill, and all a chill does is make you think twice, why not a chill uh, on the news media? What One troubling trend in the media is the decline of the presence of an ombudsman. Right. The, the Washington Post is yeah. one of the latest news outlets to do away with that position. That, I think... It's, it's an in-house position. It's, it's not a check and balance from the outside, but it is a check and balance, and it's someone who it's better than uh, ostensibly does not have responsibility to the fellow employees, but has responsibility to the readers, to the news customers. And I, I'm um, not pleased with the decline of the ombudsman. The argument is, of course, it's a cost, like so many other things in the business, uh, and that there are other checks and balances outside. But I... I um, I think that an in-house ombudsman or ombudswoman is a, a very important position, and wish that media weren't cutting them as fast as they are. Well, let's let's change gears for a second. I gave you fifty percent. Let's change gears for a second. Let's talk about the fact that the entire membership of the National Press Club, the fact that they are not writing legal briefs to be part of a lawsuit against the Department of Justice for these subpoenas. This has got to make your members just absolutely nuts what the DOJ tried to do with AP and other news sources. What's your take on that? Yes, uh, the National Press Club, we, we don't write legal briefs, so that's not what we do. But one thing we do do is have a platform to speak out on press freedom issues, and this is 
something we definitely consider a press freedom issue. So we issued a statement um, within an hour of the news coming out. Uh, we, we thought it was that important to jump on it that fast to be out there expressing our concern. Um, we, we always try to be measured in our response. We don't want to jump to conclusions. There's always at least two sides to a story. Uh, but the fact that the Justice Department was uh, looking at phone records of AP reporters, including their personal phone records, is troubling, to say the least. And what we asked for, and what we're still asking for, is answers from the Justice Department. But it seems like when the Obama administration's first reaction to this, well, we'll go to Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer sponsored the Press Shield Law. This is outside Press Shield Law. That almost seems like a, 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 almost an appeasement to the press corps, but that doesn't cover what DOJ did. Uh, you guys obviously support uh, any efforts to have a press shield law at the federal level, but how do you separate that and then look at what DOJ did? Can the Department of Justice be trusted in not going after reporters that aren't able to them? Well, uh, you're exactly right in saying that the the sudden support for the shield law from a White House that previously opposed it is, uh, we all know why they're doing that. Right. Uh, it's, and no, it would not have prevented what they did to the AP reporters. But uh, what, what is heartening, what, I, what is a glimmer of hope, is that the Justice Department has been having a lot of meetings with journalists, with uh, journalism groups like the National Press Club that represent uh, journalists, and hopefully something constructive will come out of those conversations. They're, they're at least giving lip service to wanting to to give some answers and find some solutions. They're not going to do exactly what news outlets want them to do, but hopefully there's some middle ground there, and it is a good sign that they're at least listening to the concerns of journalists. The Press Club actually uh, just booked AP CEO Gary Pruitt to come be one of our luncheon speakers next week. So Excellent. On, on uh, June 19th, you can uh, go across the street to the Press Club and hear Mr. Pruitt uh, give a speech. Or watch him on C-SPAN, and, uh, hopefully. We'd, we'd like to come in person. Oh, even better. All right. <laughs> um, you know, we were talking to a, uh, a journalist out of Oklahoma who said that the AP, uh, the AP subpoenas actually make her job harder to do good, solid investigative reporting because now it's harder to get people to trust that, mm -hmm. you know, you may not divulge, but that's not to say that, in her case, the state of Oklahoma or the U.S. Department of Justice might not target them as well. How as a journalist are you able now, with this news out there, going to be able to get confidential sources to be able to trust, not just, not that it's a matter of trust to you, but it's a matter of they just don't want to be pumped at. How do you get that? Right. It, it's always, source building is always hard, and this makes it harder. I, I don't think that the DOJ was going after the AP. They weren't looking to put a journalist in jail. But what they were doing was looking to see who their sources were. So they, they were going after the next step. They were going after um, the government officials that, that leaked information, and clearly that is, is a big chilling effect, and that's, I'm sure, exactly what it was intended to do. It almost seems like they may have done that with Edward Snowden, perhaps. I mean, that's got to be something that, as a journalist, you know, it does make your job harder. But in the grand scheme of things, is it going to change the way that investigative journalism could be done in the U.S.? Uh, too early to say, but there's always brave people willing to come forward when they see wrongdoing or misspending or whatever the, the problem may be. 
uh, I think those people are always the exception rather than the rule, than the rule, and that may become more the case. What is the what is the control over the individual reporters? Is that the editor, uh, I mean, the, the news editor? The, the editor, and beyond that, I would say... The publisher? The, the publisher, to some degree. That's on the business side. But but the customers of the news outlet. If, if you are a reporter and you put out something that's inaccurate, uh, you can easily lose your job if it's, if it's a big deal. I, I've always been fascinated, and this was an, an incident... Uh, in my place where we were covering a story for the Pacific Northwest. The Seattle Times sent back as its new D.C. reporter an investigative journalist. I mean, this guy was really paranoid. You'd say good morning and he'd say, what do you mean by that? You know. And he hated this piece of legislation and he wrote it as negatively as he could in his news columns. The newspaper supported it editorially, and I got so I would call, you know, every time he wrote something that was inaccurate, I'd call the editorial board and explain to them what was really going on. And finally, the guy says, you can stop calling us. We know he's biased. We know where he's coming from. We don't agree with him, and and we're, we pay no attention to it. And I'm saying... You mean in a single newspaper you will publish material that your editorial board knows is inaccurate and nobody goes over and tells the other side that this is inaccurate? Explain that dichotomy to me. I, I, fortunately, I'm not familiar with, uh, with such a situation. Uh, there's always a wall between the business side and the editorial side, as there should be. Um, but that, that's for a newspaper to um, acknowledge publishing something inaccurate would be highly unusual in, in my 15 years of experience in the business. Wow. Uh, take a couple. Oh, Carl, you had a question yeah, too. Do, do we know enough about uh, the, the, the writer who wrote this Snowden story to really feel that he's credible? Uh, that he did blow things up more so than Snowden might want it to do, make this a bigger thing, get a bigger splash. No, I don't. I don't think we do know enough uh, yet. I, I expect there'll be more reporting on on the journalists involved in this story as well. But uh, I, I think that's still, at least from what I've seen so far, it's still an evolving story. Let, let's take a, let's take a quick second. I, w- I want to talk about the National Press Club. Obviously, having you here, we want to find out. Uh, you know, the National Press Club has been an institution here in D.C. And, and even globally as a source of information, newsmakers coming to the press corps. Um, what's happening in the modern-day National Press Club? What are some of the new things going on there? Yeah, it, the press club's uh, mission has changed, as you might imagine, since we were founded in 1908 as a uh, drinking club for uh, for white men. And we're, we're a lot more than that now. Uh, well, I, I can still do that if I become a member, I hope. Yes. <laughs> yes, white men and everybody else can still come get a drink at the Reliable Source Bar. But uh, while the social aspect is still an important part of the club, and, and we like that we have a physical space to be a, a gathering place for journalists and their uh, sources and their friends, what, what our main missions now are um, freedom of the press, which we were talking about already, and journalism training 
is extremely important. As as the journalism really? profession has evolved, uh, people need different skills. And so you might be that person coming out of college and you know how to tweet and Instagram and take photos and video and write and do everything all at once. But if you're the journalist that's been in the career for 20 or 30 years, you might need to learn some of those things. And if you're the younger journalist, you might have some things to learn, too, about the, what we might consider traditions of journalism. So we do a lot of training. We have a National Press Club Journalism Institute that's our nonprofit arm, and they coordinate the training. So there, there's trainings, um, usually several per week, aimed, aimed at journalists, um, both our members and the general public, on, on all facets of journalistic skills. And then we also, of course, like, like before, like, like our tradition is, we want to be the place where news happens. So we host our lunch and speaker series, and we love to have people come to our stage, make their news right there at the National Press Club, and then um, take questions from, from our members, from the audience afterwards. Interesting. Bob Hines. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, a trustee of the Bureau of Foundation, mm-hmm. and I want to uh, thank the Press Club for hosting the Oh, you suck up. <laughs> Can't we do this off air? I'm burning air sign here. Hey, well, I think, it's, I think it's a nice thing that they're doing something very appropriate. We had Congressman Upton and, and uh, David Gergen as luncheon speakers just last week yeah. uh, as part of the longstanding partnership with the Ford Foundation to present some journalism awards and have a newsmaking luncheon speech at the same time. And I congratulate you and hell with these guys. <laughs> Carl Tuvin. I was going to apologize to you, but I won't. Carl Tuvin. I have one question to ask you since you're from Minnesota. Yes. How's the Packers going to do this year? Oh, come on. No, stop. Stop. I got six minutes. There's other stuff we got to oh, do. Come on. I'm the moderator. I'm the moderator. I'm the moderator. I call them. Let's take a vote. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Let's wait, take a vote. Is, is, is Brett Favre your best quarterback in history? Uh, no, I think Aaron Rodgers has surpassed that. Wow. Okay, wow. You're on record. Just letting you know. A lot of people in Green Bay. Not and we have a lot it. of good history, too. Wow. Um, as we, uh, we've got a couple of minutes here, and, and we're going to have a short and tell me a story, uh, which means, Carl, you're done after that last question. <laughs> um, how can they find out more about the National Press Club? www.press.org is our website. You can apply to join the club on there. You can see live webcasts of our all of our luncheon speakers. Like like I told you, Justin, we'd love to have you there in person, but I realize that not all of your listeners are here in Washington and can come in person. So C-SPAN broadcasts all of our luncheons, but they're not all live. So if you can catch it on C-SPAN, great. And if you can't, we uh, live webcast all of our luncheons because we think it's important for people to have access to that information. That's it. All right, if you do this, I'm canceling Tell Me a Story. Well, you never have a story. Go ahead. That's a threat. <laughs> that is a threat. Uh, I, I earlier gave you a 50%. I want to give you on your overall performance 98%. And I keep the 2% oh, just, for, the just for a toehold so that I can come back. Good Lord. Wow. Are you looking for membership too? Oh, my God. I'm the one that's supposed to be sucking up. I want to be a journalist. Uh with that being said, I, I do want to thank Angela. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks it's been fantastic. Um, you're always welcome back. And obviously, we're going to go to you. Any me- major media stories, we'd love to have your thoughts on we're it as well. We're coming fast and furious this year. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, it's quickly my time. My favorite part of the show, it's Tell Me a Story. When we talk about the na- latest news, innuendo, buzz, rumor going around the beltway, 
Congressman, you lost yours. Bob, I'll tell me a story real quick. If you don't have one, it's okay. I got four minutes. I've got one. I won't, I, you can't do it in a minute and a half. Save it till next week. Denise Krep, tell me a story. House Foreign Affairs is holding a food aid hearing tomorrow to talk about uh, the administration proposal to amend the current food aid process. The current food aid process is to ship U.S. grown grain on U.S. ships crewed by U.S. mariners. The administration wants to simply write a check. There is a battle brewing because the Senate voted on the ag bill yesterday. The Senate decided to say eh to the administration bill. The fight's going to happen in the House because House P&I and House Armed Services supports U.S. Mariners and the shipment of U.S. grain. House Foreign Affairs does not. So stand by for the food fight and Ooh. it will be a food fight. Oh, that fight. will be fun. I may have to go to hell for that one. <clears throat> that is going to be fun. That's a good that, That's story. a good story. That's why we have Tell Me a Story. And you lost yours, Carl. And I don't have one. So this gives me an added opportunity to thank uh, our show's producer, Alyssa Blanc. Thank you very much for putting this together. And on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krepp, uh, Carl Tubin, Alan Moore's out doing Alan Moore stuff. I am your moderator and sometimes pundit, yes. Justin Russell. We'll be back next Tuesday here live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The place to be. Thank you. You brought it back. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, folks. Bye-bye.